Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello, there she is on the screen. Here I am in my colorful... Hold on, is this working? Can I see you? I'm here. There you are. What are you surrounded with? Egg boxes? This is my foam, my sound booth. I've seen Nick Robinson on the Today programme. He's got a sound booth. This is foam that looks like egg cartons and it was the packaging for a light I got. And so I've repurposed it. I love that. That's where we're at with our remote recording that you are now ensconced in foam packaging. You're really Um, really upgrading. You, I see, on the other hand, are completely free and in the open air. What are you wearing? (laughs) I've got my dungarees on. I've got my adult onesie on. Oh, God. Is it tie-dye? It's tie-dye and stretchy, Kate. Tie-dye, stretchy, and only for remote recording, not to ever be seen in public. But I can see it. Am I not public? Do I not count? You're just lucky I'm not in my pyjamas, quite frankly. Oh, I might have preferred that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's time we start this show. Shall we? Okay. Hello and welcome to The Great Indoors. The podcast which reveals everything you ever needed to know about interiors and explains how to make it all really work for you in your home. I'm Sophie Robinson. And I'm Kate Watson-Smythe. Now, it's not news that over the last couple of years our homes have had to work harder than ever to accommodate all our needs. But while the spotlight has been on working from home, the way we live in our homes has been challenged in other areas too. Our sponsors, Geberit, who are Europe's leading bathroom manufacturer, have researched how multi-generational living is becoming more and more commonplace. So whether it's cooking for the whole family, juggling work and children, or finding space on the sofa for everyone, our homes have to work hard to be all things to all people. And when it comes to designing your bathroom, it pays to future-proof them. So think about having a walk-in shower so you don't have to step up and over the bath, for example. The Gebrett Setaplano shower surface is warm to step onto, it's easy to clean, but more importantly, it is made from a non-slip material. And this is clever. The Gebrett One Loo is height-adjustable, so you can change it to suit your requirements. And also don't forget that concealed cisterns and wall-hung loo are an effective way to maximise that space as well because you can hide unsightly pipework and then create the illusion of a larger room. So for more information on clever bathroom solutions, do check out the Gebret website, www.gebret.co.uk. So today it's the final episode for this series and we've got so much to share. I'll be talking to Sharon O'Connor, director and founder of Vintique Upholstery, about her work reupholstering pre-loved furniture and she's revived some very old pieces for me. We'll also be debating the top 10 trends to take you into autumn, winter 2021 and beyond. (laughs) Yeah, finally, we are allowed out and about to touch, feel and experience experience the latest in design. Oh, how we have missed that. Uh, Milan Design Week, which is usually at the start of the year, has just happened at the beginning of September. And while I didn't get to go in person, I have been very much enjoying watching all the updates that I've seen across social media. And our very own London Design Festival will be back on the 18th, the first since 2019. Can you believe it? With venues all over the city exhibiting special features addressing some of the big challenges facing us at the moment. 
Now, it's that time of year when the colour forecasters all rub their hands in anticipation with the announcement of Colour of the Year by Dulux. Last year, Sophie was stunned by the decision to go for the subtle and earthy tones of Brave Ground. You weren't keen, were you? In short, no. Was it too brown for you? Are you trying to be tactful? Wasn't really the mood boost I was after, Dulux. But then at the same time, you were totally nonplussed by Pantone's Colour of the Year, which was a much more perky, optimistic, vibrant yellow. It was the wrong yellow for me. I mean, you know I have a tricky relationship with yellow and that was just not it. But that is the past. Looking forward. Oh, oh, Lucy. Lucy, shh. Yeah, she can't wait. She can't wait for this announcement. Chill, Lucy. I'm getting to it. If we could just have a moment's silence from you. Right. So this year, dear listeners, Sophie and I are going to not only discuss the Dulux colour of the year, but we're going to round up all the other trends that we think will be big in interiors this autumn and into 2022. And so many of you will already be aware that Dulux's colour of the year is called Bright Skies. And it's, well, it's pale blue, isn't it? I actually quite like this colour. Do you? Yeah, come on, bright skies. I'm here for that. Let's have some optimism, some light and brightness. It's a very soft shade. I have to say, when I first looked at it, I thought it might be a bit grey. So I did get on to Marianne Chillingford, the creative director at Dulux, and say, now this is grey, isn't it? And she said to me, absolutely not. There's no grey in it at all. And she said it has a sort of warm visual breeziness rather than being a fresh colour. So she says it's great to use in small spaces that you want to appear bigger. Also good on a ceiling. You know, I'm always banning default white paint on ceilings. So perhaps not a difficult colour to use because friends with lots of other sort of soft pinks or warmer blues and yellows. Are you going for it, Sophie? I think you're right, Kate. I kind of think it's not like the most exciting colour. It's not a thrilling colour, but I think it's a very livable colour. For me, I'd probably treat it like a neutral, like just a bit of a background colour. Like you say, it could be a ceiling or it'd be the colour that I wrap a room around in, especially if I want a room to feel a bit bigger because it's a lovely, cool, recessive colour. So like Marianne said, it'll make your small rooms feel bigger. It's quite calming. We know that just staring at a blue sky makes us feel good. So I guess in terms of colour trends, maybe Dulux have got the memo. We want to feel good. And so, you know, a sky blue could do that. For me, I'd probably add a bit more saturation. I'm not going to lie. It's very, very pale. It is quite pale. But I think the thing is, last year, there were a lot of knickers and a lot of twists about Brave Ground, not least of all yours. But I think the thing we have to remember with the Dulux Colour of the Year prediction is that, yes, it's a paint colour. And, you know, their previous colours, Denim Drift, which was a much warmer, deeper blue, and their Tranquil Dawn, which was that very pale sort of sagey green have gone on to be bestsellers. So they are making a commercial decision about what colours they think will come in. But they're also talking about a mood. And I think everybody last year when they did Brave Ground, everybody started shouting and saying, I want a bright, optimistic pink. I want a really strong yellow. And Dulux was saying, but this is about, you know, building up after everything's been raised to the ground, you know, Brave Ground and feeling strong. So they are, it is a colour, but it's also about a mood. And so Bright Skies... Yes, it's a pale blue colour that's a great neutral, but it is also about, you know, this breezy feeling of moving forward, coming out of the pandemic and the, and the mood we are perhaps in. So it's it's more than just a colour, Sophie. Yeah, and I, I also think of this pale blue as quite a fresh start. And it also plays into a bigger trend that I think we're seeing across interiors for pastels generally. You know, it's a pastel blue, but we're, I'm seeing pastels everywhere pastel pinks, pastel yellows, pastel greens. And on Instagram, lots of people using them all together as well. So, you know, where we had this very strong chromatic trend, you know, these kind of Eve's Climb blues and deep corals a couple of years ago being really, really fashionable, emerald greens. I'm sort of seeing those fading out a bit and general, you know, if you are a colour lover, maybe the temperature's been turned down a bit. You see, I am not here for the pastels. You're not a pastel girl, are you? It's all that kind of pale ice cream colour. It's the wrong yellow for me. For my palette, it's too clean. I like a bit of mud in my curly. Dirty girl. <laughs> 
That's a different podcast. Uh, <laughs> you like a bit of filth, Kate Watson. I do in my colour palette. So, but I mean, again, this is the joy of trends, isn't it? We're always saying you've got to pick the ones that work for you. And pastels are not one that works for me. Yeah, I think pastels generally are quite, they feel quite young. They feel fresh. They feel youthful. I am not young, fresh and youthful. You see, it's not going to work for me. <laughs> <laughs> I am old and jaded and a bit grubby. <laughs> Obviously not feeling too optimistic either, Kate. Yeah, I'm not sitting here in my tie-dye onesie either, you see. I'm head to toe in black. <laughs> Give me another trend. What else you got? The other big trend that I've seen uh, been talked about quite a lot is houseplants. And it is obviously something that we've covered here before. We've had Oliver Heath on the podcast. Do dig up that episode talking about biophilic design and well-being. But actually, I was flicking through the Sunday papers at the weekend and it's nice to see interiors when it makes the main broadsheet. You know what I mean? It's not just in the home section. This was in the in the main bit about plants and specifically bathroom plants. Obviously, we've got Chelsea Flower Show coming up later in the month, so it's very topical at the moment. But interestingly, they were talking about the fact that in the pandemic, again, you know, a lot of our habits have changed, but the sales of houseplants have gone through the roof. <laughs> the hashtag bathroom plants has been used almost 25,000 times. So I thought this was really interesting that houseplants we've talked about before, but particularly houseplants in the bathroom are quite a trend. And also classically, according to the Times, a very good place to grow plants because it's humid and warm and it suits a lot of tropical plants. So there's this whole kind of like bathroom plant jungle vibe going on. I've got lots of plants in my bathroom, actually. And it's true that there are more plants in my bathroom than any other room in the house. And they are healthier in that room. I am here for the plant trend. I think that's great. And it's kind of just almost leading into our next trend that it's putting slightly more stuff in, isn't it? So you've got your essentials in the room and then you are dressing it. And again, the next trend, which we've spoken about before, maximalism, which you are definitely here for. And I'm I'm kind of playing with it a bit round the edges, just having a bit more stuff. Yeah, exactly. Again, this isn't a particularly new trend, but I think it's one that is continuing with great strength into 2022. I was delighted to see a recent launch that's just again, come out this month by the Sanderson Group, you know, lovely Sanderson, a great British uh, textile and wallpaper brand, who have just done a new archive collection, which is sort of going back, looking at, they've got this incredible catalogue, Sanderson. They own all the William Morris prints. They've got 160 years worth of design archives. And they kind of reworked these fabulous William Morris prints, but in these incredible bright colours. And the photography that they've produced to go with the new collection is just an absolute punk revival of pattern on pattern and an eclectic mixture of Victorian prints with kind of like 70s lighting with bamboo. I mean, they're just getting all the trends in there. Also, Liberty have gone back to stocking wallpaper for the first time in years. And actually, that was the first press event I went to in the summer for sort of two years. They have launched a range called the Modern Collector. And that's also quite sort of old patterns revived. So there's Art Deco, there's big florals, there's rich colours. So this is definitely wallpaper. We we spoke on that in a previous episode that wallpaper's back, but strong fabrics. So yes, the maximalism still here. And not just in wallpaper and patterns. And again, it's, it's something we've talked about, but it's the way you style your home. This more is more is more. You know, we touched on tablescaping being really fashionable. And this is going to like you know, place settings that have got placemats and getting the kind of like 24-piece spode china out and candles and place settings and napkins tied natally. You know, so it's just sort of like every single element. You can't just have a patterned wallpaper and stop there. Layer upon layer upon layer. So the, the result is something that feels very rich and very opulent. But a little word here for my listeners, as opposed to Sophie's listeners, <laughs> she is obviously going to layer it up with lots of intense colour and pattern and it's going to be quite full on. 
I would do maximalism in my way. I might call it more of a sort of monochrome maximalism, but it's tonal. So there's still lots of rich colour and pattern, but it's not high contrast. And that way you can have, if you want your placemat, your charger, your napkin, all your plates, but maybe keep the colours to different shades of one colour so that you're just not feeling feeling quite so overwhelmed. So as ever with the trend, there are different ways to do it and you can do it in the tie-dye pyjama onesie way or you can do it in the plain saturated colour way. I'm just saying that. I'm going to take us on to the next trend because I can't have any more of this of this pattern clashing. And this is interesting because we both had this email in our inbox and uh, I immediately threw it in the bin because I thought it was old hat. And then Sophie has made me look at it again. And it's called Soft Industrial. And I looked at that and I thought, no, we've been doing industrial for years. That's not new. But it's a Pinterest trend, if you like. And the, the interesting thing about Pinterest trends is that while people talk at trade shows or in magazines about what's coming up, Pinterest is about what's actually going on because it's what people are pinning in real time. And that's this idea of this soft industrial look. So, Sophie, you you were quite into that. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the industrial trend, like you say, Kate, that's been around for a long time. This kind of New York loft warehouse trend, I think, kicked it all off. It's exposed brick. It's exposed conduit piping. It's roughly hewn floorboards and the bare filament light bulbs. We're over that now. But I think people are still enjoying those rough and rustic textures. But what I'm seeing is a softener. So we're still seeing lots of black, seeing lots of black metal furniture, seeing sort of like black metal furniture with like mesh in. Seeing that quite a lot coming through in the trends, but there is also a softness here. So there's loads of like really soft Berber rugs, or it might be a velvet sofa, or plenty of kind of like deep pile cushions. And again, sort of bleeding into the maximalist trend. So less of a stripped back, stark warehouse look and more into a cozy, soft look, but still with these industrial elements. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I actually think the two work really well together. And we did our loft conversion six, seven years ago. And it was absolutely, we had the brick exposed up there. We had all the beams exposed and the joists, which were painted black. So it was kind of industrial with a with a painted wooden floorboard. And actually, over the years, we have sort of softened it without really realising or thinking we were sort of leading into a trend. But now it's got sort of a cream linen sofa. It's got lots of throws on it, got velvet cushions. We've painted the exposed brick up there in a sort of soft cream with an eggshell finish. So we've almost kind of fallen into that without realising. And I think that's a really nice look is that kind of for me, maximalism with a bit of an industrial edge is probably more me than the full-on layered chintzy maximalism. Yeah, there's no chintz and no pattern in this. It's all about the jostle of texture. Okay, so the next trend, oh, and I can't wait to hear what you're going to say about this, is yellow accents. Oh, God. I know, this is going to polarise us, but I'm just seeing pops of yellow popping up everywhere. And indeed, oh, I've got a new column for House Beautiful magazine out this month. And I talk about this very subject, how yellow isn't, for me, a wall colour, but oh, yes, it's an accent colour. So it's a yellow armchair. It's a couple of yellow cushions. It might be some yellow coming in in your accessories. I'm just seeing it everywhere. I think it's just really on trend right now. I think you've got to decide how perky you want to be. I'm looking at you. We're obviously recording this by remote and I can see some yellow post-it notes behind Sophie and that is not a yellow colour that I am here for. But I like that kind of mustardy, yellow, ochre you know, dirty yellow. That's the one for me. <laughs> so again, pick your yellow and see if it works. I also really like that we've seen a couple of times people painting their window frames in yellow. I love that idea to bring the sun in. It's a cheeky little slip of yellow. It's not the in-your-face yellow. It's like you say, using yellow in unexpected ways. I mean, but look, at one point, about probably this time last year, you were about to paint your whole kitchen yellow. No, that was all talk. It was never actually going to happen. That was my kind of fantasy kitchen life. But it's not just Dulux that does colour of the year. Farrow and Ball have also released their five colours for 2022. Um, they're not new colours, but they put them together in different ways. And one of their top colours is what they call babouche, which is that lovely sort of 
earthy yellow, which I really like, might be a bit muddy for Sophie, but they've got a whole earth tones palette going on. So with Babouche, this kind of earthy yellow, they have a lovely cream called Schoolhouse White. They have a green, no surprises. Their green is breakfast room green. It's a kind of sagey green, I think, which has been popular for a while. They've also gone to blue with what they call stone blue. So rather than that kind of pale Dulux bright skies, this is a bit of a stronger, more sort of chalky blue. And then their last colour, which works, is called Incarnadine, which is a red, rich crimson. It's a really lovely colour, actually. Oh, it's a very you colour, that is. So, yeah, I, that's interesting that their, their new palette for Autumn 21 is kind of earth tones, because I think that's something that we've seen creeping through all year. And I think that will continue into 2022. This time of year is also a great time for lighting trends, autumn, winter. And I'm seeing loads of really beautiful decorative lamps and lighting. And again, it sort of ties into this earth palette thing. They're all wicker, they're all raffia, they're all sort of rattan or kind of like rough hewn wood. Well, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we've spoken about rattan. You know, you can get really great vintage rattan lights. Again, it would work with this soft industrial trend because if you don't want lots of colour, then, you know, bring in texture by having rattan or raffia lamps. So that's something that kind of works across everything. Yeah, it's really interesting that we are, we're three years old, we're coming up to three years old at the Great Indoors pod. And our very first episode, October 2018, was Grey is Dead. And I think it's safe to say it's about six feet under now, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Because the other big trend that is gaining a pace this year and into next is the warm neutral colour palette. So rather than going for a soft grey as your neutral background, going more towards these stone, pebbly, taupey colours. And I think they marry in very much with this sort of like modern farmhouse trend that I'm seeing coming through. You know, if you're not a maximalist and you're a minimalist, I think you sit in the modern farmhouse warm neutral because it is stripped back it's not about pattern it's like clapperboard wall paneling yeah lots of tongue and groove that's huge I mean it's it's also lots of vintage wood vintage furniture which you know runs throughout all these trends is this idea of sustainability and buying old furniture so that's kind of almost has taken itself out of being a trend as I think we are gradually just accepting that that's the way to go. But the the modern farmhouse is, it has all the colour and naturalness of the industrial, but it doesn't really have black in it. So whereas you might have a black accent in the soft industrial, your modern farmhouse will have just as much texture and soft colours, but losing the black. Yeah, I think it's a bit more refined than industrial as well. I think it's just softer. Uh, softer to the touch, softer to the eye. And I think where sort of the grey palette and the sort of minimalist Scandi look, I feel like this is replacing it. And we've got two more trends before we finish this segment. So the trend number nine of our top 10 trends is, and this will be no surprise to anyone, We've all had to sort of make our spaces work harder throughout the last couple of years. And we've talked about, you know, working from home and creating an office in your sitting room or your bedroom or wherever it may be. But this has also come through into the kitchens. And we're seeing that that there's a desperate trend and desire for that notion of a pantry or a larder. But even if you haven't got space for that, a sort of pantry cupboard, you know, everybody's now selling those, aren't they, in their kitchen designs, where you open the doors and everything's stored in there. I'm here for a pantry cupboard. I have a kind of hybrid pantry utility room where the washing machines and everything and the mops and the ironing board and everything go. But uh, yeah, I think there's something quite homely about this trend and also organised. Something really satisfyingly organised about having a pantry cupboard. And even if it's just a pantry shelf, even if it's just like, I know Sky McAlpine's got one of these, lovely floating open shelves in your kitchen with beautiful kilner jars all lined up in a row with all your different cooking ingredients on display. You know, that would be another way to do it if you've got a, a small property or you can't afford a pantry cupboard. But there's something just very bucolic and homely, I feel. It comes back to that notion of having some control, isn't it? If your pasta is well <laughs> sorted then you feel better in the world don't knock it I think it's true I think we should move on the final trend I've just called it cool crafts 
But it's kind of like everything handmade. And again, I think during this extraordinary 18 months, we've seen a real boost in people getting a bit makey-do. And it's like block-printed fabrics, it's hand-painted murals. Yes, we've been painting furniture with chalk paint, but you can't just stop there. You can't just paint your sideboard one colour. You've then got to hand-paint it, sort of Bloomsbury style, if you like. It's kind of like painterly decoration. I like it in small doses. So it's that notion, isn't it, that you might paint a wardrobe or a table and you might paint a little bit of flower or ivy leaf on it. It's not one to go overboard on. Well, not in this house. Sophie may have different views. She's here for it. Oh, (laughs) yes. Come on. I mean, I've just seen some incredible stuff on Instagram. Like Tess Newell does these beautiful hand-painted murals. Lucy Tiffany, of course, I'm a massive fan of. And then recently I discovered on Instagram this amazing account called Dingley Dell Creative. And <laughs> Dingley this, uh, Dell? Dingley Dell Creative. Honestly, Kate, check her out. There's a very kind of Swedish folksy vibe to the way she hand paints furniture. And I'm not about to try it myself, but I'd love to invest in one of her pieces. But for any of our more arty and crafty listeners, the thought of just, you know, stenciling's one thing, but sort of freehand painting furniture, I think just looks... It's just really beautiful and it feels very heartfelt. It feels really artisan and it kind of feeds into my maximalist tendencies to want to have pattern on everything. Well, and there we shall leave it. <laughs> <laughs> You've got, you got to go and have a lie down I've now. got to go and have a lie down. I've got to rest my eyes from the tie-dye onesie, which is quite enough pattern for me for one day. <laughs> um, and we shall leave you with those top 10 trends. I mean, I think the takeaway from that is that there's something for everyone. That's our roundup for what we think is going to be fashionable in 2022. But we also would love to hear from you. What are you spotting on social media or out and about? Do share what you're loving about interior design right now over on our Facebook group, The Great Indoors Podcast. Now, Sharon O'Connor has reupholstered not just my chaise long, but a very old sofa that belonged to my great-grandmother that then my mother had. So I know the quality of her craft. She's the director and founder of Vintique Upholstery. She's a passionate advocate of reusing and revamping. And she's recently started a scheme which she has called Virtual Vintique to mentor those who are thinking of upholstery as a second career. Sharon, welcome to The Great Indoors. Hi, Kate. Lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. When we spoke about arranging this interview, you wrote back and said there'd been an explosion of interest in upholstery. I'm really interested to know why that is. Oh, well, I retrained. 2008, I lost my job in the recession. I used to work in fashion. So I retrained by sheer coincidence into upholstery because I bought a rec sofa and I thought I need to get this reupholstered. So I sent it off to an upholsterer. And that's how my upholstery journey began. I thought, this is fantastic. I've got unique pieces of furniture. So I started, I went off and I went and retrained, which wasn't easy in a recession because there was hardly any courses to retrain as an upholsterer. Since then, training has exploded. So the Association of Master Upholsterers, they have now, I would say there's over 100 courses UK worldwide. Now there's people queuing and waiting lists for upholstery courses. So I think that recession in 2008 really switched on the awareness for upcycling, recycling, looking at what we've already got, making things old, new again, and how that adds so much more personality into our home if it's all not matchy-matchy new from a showroom. And that is where the explosion started. And the pandemic has just been phenomenal for this craft. Phenomenal. That's so interesting. So what you're saying is it started perhaps as a money-saving exercise for you perhaps and other people and has now switched more towards the sustainability and individuality of our furniture. Definitely. So I've been in business now nine years next year and I feel like in the last three years there's been a real switch, more so since the pandemic, but it's been starting before that. There was a lot more... fabric companies that are starting to do sustainable eco-fabrics. And we're all starting to think about the impact on the environment. And I'm getting inundated with, we've got a lovely family sofa. We don't really want to buy new. The word that's coming to everyone's mind now is landfill. We don't want to put it to landfill. So we're thinking, actually, there's nothing wrong with it. The bones of the sofa is fine. What about reupholstering it? 
And that is, it just seems to have really switched on which is phenomenal. That's what I very much felt about my sofa, that it had been in my family for years and years and years. And I wanted to keep it because I love that character and, you know, having a piece of furniture that tells a story. But the sort of sad fact at the moment anyway, is that that's definitely the more expensive choice to make, isn't it? Because it's it's wrong and we hope it changes. But as things stand, it would have been much cheaper for me to dump that sofa and go and buy a new one rather than, you know, employ you, very trained, you know, that's highly skilled work and we can come into that a bit more later. But also buying the fabric, you know, that's not cheap. So it's it's a difficult decision to make, isn't it? Well, it's one of those kind of planet or wallet decisions and the two aren't yet compatible. It depends where you've bought your original sofa from. So if you've bought your original sofa from, for example, a Heels or a Habitat and you've already invested that sort of money, then you're probably prepared to reinvest that again to have an absolute bulletproof sofa again for the next 15 years, probably longer. But if you pick the right fabric, and they're such great fabrics, you don't have to be £100 a metre on a fabric. You can be £28 a metre. It can be stain resistant. And it's perfect. It's perfect for dogs, cats, humans, children. It's perfect. So there's some really good fabrics out there that actually you don't have to spend top dollar. So there's I can work within a budget. But if someone comes to me and they really want that unique House of Hackney kind of look, then they're going to have to invest a little bit more in the fabric. So if you've bought a more affordable, a cheaper sofa, is it worth spending money recovering it in a fabric of your choice? Because I'm guessing perhaps that the frame is not quite as strong or it might need sort of remaking and rebuilding to justify the expense of the material. The bones of modern sofas are normally pretty good. They're not as strong as your antique oak frame sofas. They never will be. You're like, you're like I'm talking like a ch- an antique Chesterfield. But if you're looking at a modern, um, a modern sofa, yeah, it's probably made out of beach. So it's a bit lighter. They never have a barrier between the fabric and the foam. So the foam tends to break down quicker. But as an upholsterer, what I will always do is I will improve that sofa as if it's been built from new. So I don't necessarily rip the foam off if there's nothing wrong with the foam, but I'll always put that barrier of polyester between the foam and the fabric to make it last longer. So you could have that sofa for another 20 years. Good to know. And talking of fabric, one of the things that struck me when you came to visit me and we were doing my chaise long is I really didn't know what I wanted, which is quite unusual for me. Um, and I also, I find it really difficult to look at fabric swatches for, you know, the overwhelm is is real and in my case quite quick. You know, I'm a bit like I've looked at 10 pieces and I haven't instantly fallen in love with anyone. Now I'm bored. And what I loved when you came to see me was we had a little email chat. We talked about colours. You'd looked at pictures of the rest of my room on Instagram, so on and so forth. And you brought a huge bag of stuff and were able to kind of guide me to some ideas that I wouldn't have had on my own, which is, you know, the brilliance of reupholstery and an expert. But do you, what was your background? You said fashion. Do you think that's helped you? The irony is I worked in fashion for 20 years, but I worked on the business side of it. So the only thing that I was creative with was, was numbers on Excel spreadsheets. But I was in that environment. So I think it did filter through. And I didn't think I had a creative bone in my body and then suddenly a light switched on and I started doing upholstery and it it came. I can go into a room and I can know exactly what a big piece of furniture needs. And I love it. And I did a blog post recently as well about don't worry about picking the wall colours and everything else first. Actually, the big piece of furniture in terms of colour, texture, print is really important. The rest can come from that. So a lot of people come to me at the end of a renovation project, but I'm finding now people are coming to me at the beginning because they want to get those key pieces right first. And the sofa is such a key piece. Absolutely. And we we talk all the time. In fact, we've talked earlier in the show about the new trends. And again, you know, while we say don't follow trends unless they're the right ones for you. But I still want to ask you, is there a kind of look or colour that, that people are coming to again and again with you? Something you're picking up on that's popular? Velvet is going nowhere. Printed velvet is going nowhere. For example, I've just launched a new brand within my business called Very Vintique. For the people that don't have that special chair or that special family heirloom, I get asked a lot. I'd love to buy a piece. So I decided to create a brand. 
And my first chair was a black pop fabric made out of 100% recycled water bottles, a beautiful printed velvet. And you would never know. So that ticks every box. It's sustainable. It's an heirloom piece. It was a 1950s mid-century chair from Sweden with a beautiful curved back. It ticked so many boxes. So I think you can get style and sustainability. Absolutely. That sounds like a really good idea, sort of creating heirlooms of the future, if you like. Coming back to this idea of sustainability or sort of revamping old pieces, We've all seen on eBay, you know, the chaise long, which is is sort of held together by, well, I don't know, sort of personal magnetism, I think, and air. You know, you look at it and it's on eBay for a pound and somebody just wants you to come and collect it. Any sort of advice for people listening when buying old furniture like that? I would say be very careful and not every seller is going to be honest about this, but be very careful about a woodworm situation. It's fixable, but I would want to know before you pick it up, you want to know, you want to go and see it and know there aren't those little telltale holes. See if you can find out the history of the age of it and talk to an upholsterer before you buy. So a lot of people contact me first and I think that's the best thing to do because I can say, right, that is a Victorian chaise. That is going to need a rebuild from frame up. There's no doubt about it. Or actually that's a more vintage, more modern piece. That's fine. That's probably foam and that's going to be a cheaper project to re-upholster. So knowing the age of it, getting as much information about the condition and then having an idea of what you actually want, because then I can, from that picture, I can give you a guesstimate of what I think it's going to cost you, including fabric to re-upholster. Then before you've bought it, you know what the investment is. I really like that idea because I think a lot of us would just like the shape of a piece, buy it, and then have to deal with all the inherent problems. And Sharon, when you're looking for old pieces of furniture, are there any sort of names? I've got a pair of vintage Halabala chairs, which is a Czech designer, Gingerick Halabala, which I bought on eBay. Are there names that people can be looking out for or that may be up and coming that aren't that expensive yet? Because I think the Halabala chairs have now been discovered and they're very expensive. (laughs) Yeah, they have. Yeah, you're right. The Halabala chairs are, I get a lot of those actually, and they are beautiful because of the bentwood arms. They're stunning. I tell you the brand my customers can't get enough of is Parkinol. Now, I would have never thought I'd see the day where people would love a Parkinol wing chair, but you put a printed velvet on a Parkinol wing chair, it is beautiful and the Jubilee sofas, the Jubilee chairs. And the other brand I was going to say was some G-Plan, some uh, Robin Day. So there's lots of brands out there. The next point is, and obviously I don't want to take any work away from you, Sharon, but I know you're quite busy. Is there any sort of upholstery that that anyone can do at home? You know, I'm not talking about ripping out the webbing or replacing this barrier between the foam and the frame that you've talked about. But is there anything that that one can do or does it all need specialist tools and, and specialist muscles? Definitely. So on my blog, I talk about a few things. One of them is a piano stool. A piano stool is a real quick and easy revamp. You don't necessarily need many tools. You probably need a good hammer to be able to put tacks in if you're going to do tacks or you can buy really good electric staple guns. I wouldn't use those to do a sofa or an armchair, but for a small project that's got like a drop-in seat pad of a piano stool, they are great. And then you can buy some foam, you can buy some polyester. Come to, I mean, a lot of people come to me if they've got DIY things and I give them the foam and the polyester and I give them a little bit of a tip on how to do it. So that on my blog, there is a step-by-step of a piano stool. I've also talked as well, I've done a step-by-step on a Lloyd Loom. Lloyd Looms are phenomenal. They're everywhere and they're going so cheap on Facebook Marketplace. They are the things to pick up and have a go because with a bit of paint and a nice bit of fabric, they are really good quick turnarounds that give big impact. Fantastic tips. And now there's one thing I want to to just mention because I've noticed it on your Instagram. Uh, first of all, it's interesting to say that when you started, there were just two courses at either end of the country and now there's a waiting list and there's a huge explosion. This is a job, perhaps a really interesting second career. Is it quite women heavy? Is it a great career for second career for women? Yes, yes, yes. A hundred percent. Most people I train, I was 40 when I trained and I'm 50 now. I would say it's an investment to do good training. I trained with the Association of Master Upholsterers. So I think you need to go to a good tutor and a good course. Most of the people who are training in it now are mums whose kids have gone to school and they're now looking to do something creative or something a bit different and they want to have flexibility. 
The one thing I would say is if you want to have a successful, thriving business, you do have to work hard and you do have to work consistently hard. You can't do a couple of projects a year and think you're going to get a customer base. It doesn't work like that. But I do think that if you're consistent, you're not afraid of social media, you're not afraid to share what you do and you get really good training, then I think it's a fantastic, I don't plan to leave upholstery for a very, very long time. Fantastic. And you're, I also see you've got another project going on, which is you are now mentoring. I have started a business called Virtual Vintique, where I talk about what to actually expect when you go into upholstery. So it's all the things about courses versus classes, traditional versus modern. Do you want to specialise or do you want to do all of it or do you want to be quite general? It's been brilliant. So I started it in March last year. I've got a private Facebook group for anyone who's joined, who's paid for that programme and joined that programme. And I'm mentoring them through the start of, right, you're about to start your course. A lot of them are starting their courses now in September, which is amazing. Some of them are starting to send me some of the projects they've done over the summer with a bit of help from me and a bit of help from other people around them. I've got someone who's just retired, who's 65. She's starting out in upholstery. So many people are interested in this craft now, but there was a real lack of knowledge about what it entailed, how to get into it, how much it costs, which is not cheap. A typical AMUSF course, the full three years can be in the region of £30,000. So you need to be prepared. But that's a full on traditional upholstery course, which is what I did. But there are many, many other ways of doing it with leisure courses, with diplomas. Sitting Guild is starting to really fire up on this craft, which is amazing in certain areas. So I just think there was a real lack of what it actually entailed. And I felt like I needed to fill that gap. And obviously, it sounds like there's there's going to be no shortage of work for people coming into this field. You know, it's all so busy. I have had really steady growth year on year for the last nine years, and I can't see it slowing down. I felt like last year was obviously a boom. The whole world was getting their outdoor furniture done last year. The whole world was thinking about what they were sitting on last year and the sofa reinventions were coming in and out of the workshop constantly. And I thought, maybe it'll slow down. Maybe it will. And it isn't. People are really conscious that they're at home a lot more and they want it to look amazing so the landscape is really buoyant and really vibrant and I'm having the most amazing calls fabric meetings with people the most interesting stories about where this furniture has come what what they want to do with it how it's going to live in their house going forward so yeah it's a very very buoyant vibrant trade that's fantastic and I love the idea as you know of, of furniture telling stories so thanks so much for that Sharon it's been really interesting thanks Kate thank you very much you can follow Sharon over on Instagram at Vintique underscore upholstery and you will find me at Mad About the House and her over there on Sophie Robinson Interiors. Now for our style surgery and this week we've got a dilemma from Amanda in the US. Hi Kate and Sophie. My husband and I are in the process of purchasing his childhood home which we plan to remodel and live in for the rest of our lives. The house is not my dream home. It was built in the 70s. It has original features like a sunken living room and orange bathroom sinks and a beautiful big brown bathtub in the master bathroom. What I'd like to know from you is how do I take this dated home, which by the way is in the beautiful countryside, surrounded by beautiful green trees, green pasture, there's a river in the back. How do I take this dated home and make it my dream English countryside cottage? This is a tricky one for anybody who inherits a home or wants to do up, you know, their parents' home to move into. It's, you've got to be quite sensitive, haven't you? Have you? <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just in there with a sledgehammer cake. I'm getting getting my uh, yeah, sleeves rolled up and going, come on, this is our house. This is our next chapter. I might say I'm going to lose the orange bath, but keep the orange sinks. There's also that notion of having to do up the childhood home, which I would feel sensitive about, even if you're there with your sledgehammer. But also, you know, this is quite, from the sounds of it, you know, it's quite a distinctive 
period property. And we're all quite comfortable, I think, particularly in this country with your sort of country farmhouse doing up or your Victorian period house. But that 70s houses and 60s houses, they're quite distinctive looking and they're quite polarising, aren't they? You know, there are those that love them and want to preserve them. And there are those that that really don't like them and it wouldn't be their choice. So it's it's an interesting renovation she's doing. Even though it didn't make our top 10 trends, uh, 70s is really huge and really fashionable. And you're right. And I'm sure we've got plenty of listeners who are going, Amanda, stop. You know, you've got a gem here. You've got a, a house from the 70s that has still got the 70s interior design within it. It must be preserved. You must keep your orange sinks and your sunken living room sofa. But look, here's the thing, you know, obviously... Amanda hasn't moved into a museum and she's not there as the gatekeeper of her husband's childhood memories. This is about her creating a home with something that's going to resonate with her. And I think it's really interesting that she's gone straight to the location and the environment for inspiration. I think that's brilliant. She's looked out of her windows and seen the local flora and fauna and it's not orange acrylic. (laughs) It's It's not shagpile, is it, Amanda? And yet at the same time, it's not English country house either and yet she cites that as one of her inspirations which is quite interesting so I would try and straddle this love of the outdoors and the colour palette and the design motifs that you're seeing outside your window but maybe rather than looking at quintessential English design maybe look at some American country house design which of course has been influenced by British design maybe that would be a more sympathetic blend with the 70s architecture you know you're not going to be able to create an English country cottage inside something that is so distinctive. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, if you're not raising the house to the ground, you have got that 70s architecture. So you have got to nod to that. But I mean, when I think back to the 70s and and I was there, there's a lot of kind of orange cladding, wooden cladding on the walls, which you might not want. But as we've mentioned, you know, tongue and groove, wooden pine cladding is still very fashionable now. So, you know, keep the nod to the 70s with the wooden sort of cladding or shiplap and maybe paint it in a more modern colour that suits you better. So you're perhaps, you know, keeping some of the architectural bones in a nod to the period of the house, but update it with colour. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting. When we bought our house, which is a British farmhouse in the English countryside, however, the people who lived here had done quite an 80s renovation number. So we had like faux beams, brick slips, Artex, swirly Artex everywhere in an attempt to make it look oldy woldy farmhouse, but it just looked like something lifted out of Disney. It was horrendous. So we stripped all that out. And actually, you know, because my house is cobbled together from farm workers' cottages, it wasn't some big grand farmhouse. It actually didn't have a lot of really beautiful original features. So we've had to kind of put the character in. And I've done that with panelling, wood panelling. I've also done that by choosing wallpapers that are floral or have botanical motifs on them. I've used traditional ticking stripes and chintzes and old sort of Persian rugs, the sorts of things you'd have found in old country houses to bring in the character and the warmth in my home, because I did want it to reflect that it's a country house in the countryside. And what we tend to find, you you know, the more common dilemma is somebody who's bought a, a period house or like you say, an old cottage, which is decorated in the 80s style, not, I'm guessing, because your previous owners were big fans of the 80s as a look, but that was probably the period they decorated it in. And so you have people who move into, you know, old Victorian houses which haven't been touched since the 70s. And that's about returning the decor to something which suits the period of the house. Amanda is almost the other way around because she's got a proper 70s house with 70s decor in it. So the two do fit together because they're the right periods put together. But she doesn't perhaps want that whole 70s look, which might feel a bit a bit Disney or a bit pastiche. So it's keeping bits of it that you might like and updating others. So I would say, you know, a bit of wooden panelling, as I've already mentioned, but and I love the idea of a sunken living room. That sounds heavenly. Yeah, I keep that too. Just cover it in chintzy cushions. The other great thing from the 70s was corduroy. So we're getting into different textures. You know, it doesn't all have to be orange and brown, but, you know, bring in maybe corduroy as a really nice texture in a colour that you love. And, you know, it might sound quite obvious, but it sounds like you're in a forest or surrounded of trees. So maybe green is your colour that you're bringing in with sort of, I'm not going to say you're going to hang macrame baskets everywhere, but 
I think it's lots of natural textures are really going to be the look for you. Yeah, it's all about that colour palette. And I think, you know, that the English country house colour palette is very sympathetic with the flora and fauna outside. So it is soft greens, rose pinks, lovely soft golden flax yellows, china blues, you know, those sorts of colours, like you say, rather than the fiery hot browns and oranges and lime greens that, and purples that we associate with 70s interiors. And the other thing I think, and obviously we haven't seen the house, but I'm guessing if it's a classic 70s house, what you will have in contrast to Sophie's farmhouse, where the windows are all very small and quite high, I'm guessing it's got big picture windows so you can really take advantage of the view. So that's that's a fabulous thing to have, which we, we don't often think about in houses of that period. You know, we're so busy thinking, oh, I don't want a 1970s house. It's really characterless. But actually, it's probably got great windows, nice big square rooms, your sunken living room, as opposed to your house, Sophie, which... I know you've complained about the windows being smaller and higher. Small windows, low ceilings, not a lot of natural light. So really, it sounds like, Amanda, that you've got a real jewel of a house there. And I suppose in short, what we're saying is find out what it is you love about the house, the views, the windows, maybe the layout. Me and Kate are both gunning for you to keep that sunken living room. So celebrate the architectural details you like and then use the design motifs, the colour palette, the textures and the design details of nature and of classic British interiors to bring in your own sense of style. Good luck with it and send us some photos. I think we'd all like to see this. Yes. Don't forget, if you've got a burning interiors question, then make an appointment with the Style Surgery. Just send us an email and preferably a voice note to thegreatindoorspod at gmail.com. That's it for today. And indeed, for this series, we will be taking a short break. Well, because we are very busy ladies, I've got an extremely exciting new interior design show for Channel 5 that I'm currently filming, which will hopefully be on your screens in the new year. And I'm launching my new first ever online course in which I share all I know about creating beautiful interiors and help you discover your own sense of style. Go to createacademy.com and if you sign up before the end of the month, you get a 15% discount. Can't say better than that. So we promise to be back later in the autumn with a new series that will take you all the way up to Christmas. But in the meantime, there'll be more details and links from today's episode over on the blog, sophierobinson.co.uk and madaboutthehouse.com. Which leaves me to offer up a huge thank you to our series sponsor, Geberit, Europe's leading bathroom manufacturer for supporting this series. And a special thanks to our producer, Sarah Cudden of Feast Collective, and to Tom Brignall, who mixes each episode so beautifully. And thank you to you for listening. And we'll see you in the great indoors. Whoop de doo de doo da! <laughs> We're done. Now I can rest my eyes from the tie dye. <laughs>